what, Patrick Flynn? What, Beth Amon? I hate this movie. Love Actually? Yes. Me too. But I also love it. Me too. But I hate it. You know what we should do? What? We should get a bunch of people together, split the movie into its 10 storylines, and then figure out this movie one story at a time. You mean people like Keith Powell and Jill Knox Powell from NBC's Connecting? Keith, why don't you show us what porn watching faces? And Washington Post columnist Alexandra Petri? I don't know. I think every Christmas story is a horror story. Do you think it would work? It actually inspired me to plan my funeral. I dig the uh, brothel angle. Every time I think about the trailer, I'm like, I was misled. I love your use of the word shag, by the way. Can I mix your ashes with glitter? It's like eight half screenplays just put in a blender. I am positive I stayed with my ex an extra six months because we saw this in the theater. It will definitely work. What is Love Actually? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download. All episodes out November 27th. Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is many things. You might know him as the president of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization or the co-founder of Encores at City Center, but I think probably all anyone ever wants to talk to him about is for a couple months, he was a gopher on a little show called Follies. It's Ted Chapin, everybody. <laughs> Hi there. Glad to be here. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for coming, Ted. It is not an exaggeration to say, as I hold up for, for you, your book, uh, Everything Was Possible, which is one of my favorite books. And I was I'm so happy to have you on the show. But we're not here to talk about follies. Well, we certainly will at some point. But uh, we're actually here to talk about... The Rothschilds. In my own lifetime. Want to see our efforts blessed in my own lifetime. I want to see the walls come down and then I'll rest. This Moses wants to see the promised land in my First question about the Rothschilds. How many times did Alexis Smith cut Could I Leave You? No, I'm um, <laughs> Who are you, Frank Rich? <laughs> In all seriousness, how did uh, the Rothschilds come into your life? Well, I figured out early on, um, I was lucky in that my father, Skylar Chapin, was involved with the arts in New York City in a lot of different ways. And um, actually, my older brother was a gopher on a production um, a couple of years before I ever was, and I was seethingly jealous. Um, and I thought, oh, I want to do that. I want to, as they say, be in the room where it happens. Sure. And um, luckily, he could have cared less. And so I started in the next year figuring out what shows were rehearsing during the summer so I could offer myself as a gopher and just see how the theater worked and how shows were put together. So I figured out the Rothschilds was that, that, that summer of 1970. 
Um, and uh, I somehow, I think through my father, connected with Hillard Elkins, the producer. Mm -hmm. And um, I talked my way into being a gopher on, on the show. And um, so it was fun. It, it, was, it was a very interesting experience. And part of why I thought it'd be fun to, 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 to use the Rothschilds for this show is the fact that very few people know <laughs> that I was a, a gopher. And um, since I'm a bit of a pack rack, I did still hold on to scripts and things about it. So even though there's never, there'll never be a book, um, <laughs> rest assured, not enough information. Well, it is, I'm glad you did because uh, it, it is one of those, I feel like Bach and Harnick are in a lot of ways overlooked mm -hmm. in uh, when we talk about musical theater, it's all just sort of fiddler on the roof and then we move on. And they did write a number of shows, some of which ran, some of which didn't, um, but that are all really, really interesting. And I think that the the thing that Bach and Harnick excel at in music theater, especially in She Loves Me, but in, in all of their shows, is the way the songs emerge from the scene and and organically come into the environment and then kind of go back again. They're really like nobody really can do it quite like like Bach and Harnick. No, they were they were kind of kind of extraordinary. They were very efficient. It was interesting that when I did go back and look through the notes that I had kept, some of which are quite fascinating, I have to say, they were constantly rewriting on the Rothschilds. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, the, the fat script that I have from the first day of, of rehearsal has maybe five songs that ended up in the show that opened several months later on Broadway. Wow. Um, and they and interesting, the ones that stayed are the ones about the Rothschilds in business, the Bond songs, the song when they're in London and stuff like that. It's the, interesting that the family songs, Sons was there mm -hmm. um, and everything was there, but otherwise so much of what was written out of town was about focusing on Meyer Rothschild and his sons and his wife. Just interesting that you might think that was where they would have started. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Before we get too deep into it, we should probably, for people who don't know, uh, tell a little bit about the story. So do you think you could summarize the plot of the Rothschild? <laughs> sure. I, I um, Meyer Rothschild, um, a Jewish man in Europe in a time when they were kept in the ghetto, um, was a ambitious, determined man. And he fathered five sons and figured out the way to do business was not having a little shop, which he did, but to go into the banking business and send his five sons to different capitals in Europe, thereby having an, an inter-family connectivity of financial um, banking. And they basically became um, incredibly wealthy and very knowledgeable about how to, to you know, how to do banking in between all those, you know, European fiefdoms at the time. Um, and I think, I mean, one thing that, that should be said is, is ultimately, it's a story about a family, but it's a story about banking. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I know what a banker actually does. Um, and so I, I think that there's a little bit of, of a peculiar notion that there'd be a musical about banking. <laughs> You know, and I think that's one of the problems that they kept facing is, you know, when do we talk about selling bonds and cutting the price to the bonds and, you know, and, and being in service to the king of Denmark. And, and it's like, well, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, how are the sons? Are they getting married yet? <laughs> well, and it's the, because yeah, there is one, the one song that sort of dives into it, I think is They Say, right, in Act Two, when the mm -hmm. London financiers are trying to figure out 
exactly what what is how is what is he doing what is yeah what's going on what's What's going going on on? here i don't know what's going on here they say he has a million in the bank he has two i hear three they say he made his fortune out of wool cotton lace china leather timber silver gold jamaican rum rubbish that too if you what? He dabbed his eye. He dabbed his eye? This tells the clerk he wants to buy. Buy hell, he wants to sell. Sell what? Buy what? What is it? What is it? They don't, but I don't find at the end of that song, I know more than they did at the beginning of that no. song. So, no, yeah. it's, yeah. <laughs> it is an interesting, um, interesting problem. Was that, so when you, when you started with the show, was it right at the beginning of rehearsal? It was at the beginning of rehearsal, yeah. And so, um, I mean, one of the things that, that, that most, most musical theater enthusiasts know about, the two things they know about the Rothschilds. One is that it was the last Bach and Harnick show that they broke up after the right, show. Right, right. And the other was, and it's connected, that Derek Golby, who was the original director, was fired out of town. Yes. And Michael Kidd, who was the choreographer, took over. Yeah. And it's funny because um, when I told somebody I was doing this program, they said... Um, did you see the dissolution of the Bach and Harnick partnership? Mm. Um, and I said, no, no, they were working very hard. They were writing numbers. They were, you know, they, they were the normal nervous, you know, out of town right. writers, but they were, they were just working on. But I think Sheldon, subsequent to the Rothschilds, he's been quite articulate in interviews about the fact that there were tensions in the team before the Rothschilds and that, you know, Jerry Bach liked Derek Golby and was supportive of him and did not think he should be replaced. Um, But I think, I mean, even my notes as a gopher were like, what's he doing? Why isn't he actually directing this? What's he, he just Mm -hmm. sort of sitting there watching it all, you know, wash, wash over him. So I think it was probably a foregone conclusion that that, that was not going to last. Yeah. So. Did you know they rehearsed in Detroit? No, rehearsed. It's interesting. It's they started rehearsals in a in a studio in New York and then moved. Here's going to date me. They uh-huh. moved into the theater that they were going to play in New York, the Lundfontein. Mm-hmm. So most of the rehearsals in New York were in the the Lundfontein. Then it played the Fisher Theater in Detroit in August. Okay. Um, before going to, to Philadelphia and then coming in. Gotcha. I, would, I stayed with the show through the first few weeks in Detroit, and that was the end of it for me. And we should also say probably that this is the show is a true story. I mean, it's based on a true story, yes. I should say, yes. anyway. Yes, um, absolutely. But in doing some research before I spoke with you, I stumbled across an interview with, with Hal Linden, who is the star of this show and the right. biggest thing to come out of this show. I mean, this launched his career mm-hmm. uh, as a name actor, I should say. Yep. And he won a Tony for it. And he said, If I do my job well... It won't work. I die right in the beginning of the second act. If I'm good enough in that first act, the audience is not going to want me to die. You can't do that on a stage. You can't have an audience invest in a character and then hopefully reinvest it in, in his children later on. You know, it was always a problem with the show. And so uh, the next thing I knew, they had a song in the second act, and then they moved my death a little later. and. I actually attended a conference uh, which took place about eight years after my death 
but they said, history be damned, we got to keep the character alive. And, and gave him the song that has become the signature song of the Rothschilds in my own lifetime. Right. You know, song written, it, I don't think that, it was not in the show when I left it. So it was between Detroit and Philadelphia oh, wow. that that song was written. Yeah, was, I, heard, I, I saw you, t- or read an interview, I think maybe with you, where you talked about going to see it opening night. And yeah. How it was an entirely different show. It was, it was like, yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things, and for, you know, for for the people who are interested in the Rothschilds, one of the concepts, the original concepts of the show, was that because their life was about money, mm. that that each of the societies that they were involved with would start with an auction, starting with auctioning a, a year in which would be, you know, what Europe, you know, when the ghettos were set up mm-hmm. and then, you know, going through the various, uh, in the French, which still remains in the score and then ending up with the bond auction in England when they're actually selling bonds. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, it was an interesting intellectual uh, conceit, which, which didn't work right from the beginning. So they mm-hmm. kept messing with that. Um, and even though King Curtis, who was extraordinary, um, still played that role of the narrator auctioneer. But mm-hmm. it is interesting when you look at it now and you think, it's, why are we suddenly selling something? You know, it's not, it, it, they didn't cut it entirely. They didn't leave it the way it was. It's kind of a strange hybrid, I think. Yeah, in the middle, in, in Alon's, yeah. 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 It's a, well, but it is that problem though also of putting, I mean, how much was Sherman Yellen involved in the, the rewrites at that point? Was he drastically rewriting the book also? Oh, yeah. Okay. He was, he was a, 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 this was new for him. And I think mm-hmm. he, was, he was nervous about it. I mean, everybody was, they're all, you know, putting on a new show and, and going out of town. You don't know what it's going to be like. Right. Um, so he was, he was there. I mean, well, I, well, one interesting thing, observation about, about the Rothschild is, you know, th- that wonderful chapter in the Bill Goldman book this season about the muscle mm-hmm. that he says, there's always in any production of Broadway, somebody has the muscle. Mm-hmm. And in this one, the muscle was the producer, Hillard Elkins, mm-hmm. who was this fascinating sort of Svengali-like character. And the picture of him in those, in, in that year, you know, he had like a Van Dyke mustache <laughs> and he always wore very, sort of hip clothing was married to Claire Bloom. So that gave him some class. Oh, all right. Um, but he, he, and he also never had money, which is why Lester Osterman became the co-producer because he had the checkbook. <laughs> but, but I think, I think part of why it was sort of tortured and it's, it's a lot of its um, birth was tortured was because Hilda Elkins wanted a big musical and he wanted to, you know, to get the Jewish market in New York. And, you know, he just, he, he wanted to bludgeon it into a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a sort of odd way to have the muscle um, because I'm not sure he had a vision about what he actually wanted on stage. He just wanted it to be successful and he wanted it to be um, big and, and boastful and, you know, confident and all that kind of stuff. Um, he was, he was, he would, I mean, and it's, it's also interesting that there are two references, two books that have fairly major references to the Rothschilds. One is a book about Hillard Elkins called The Producer. And I remember one night he sent me um, to get soul food into the, into the black section of, of Detroit to pick up soul food. And I remember at the time thinking, really? Oh, really? <laughs> but there's a passing reference to that in that book on Hillard Elkins. Um, but, you know, he was, he, was, he was quite a character, quite a character. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, because well, that actually saw, like, answers some questions of mine about the show because it does, a show I kept thinking of listening to it was Fiorello. 
where mm-hmm. Bach and Harnick were, were writing the songs that, that George Abbott told them to write. It, it felt like a driven a show that they were not fully authors of as opposed to a score like apple tree which always feels like a very very bach and harnick score to me Mm -hmm. um and this kept popping into my head of this idea that like uh it felt like there was a force driving it from from behind somebody being like it wasn't quite working it wasn't quite doing what it was supposed to be doing and it was being pushed and that's that sort of is ultimately i think how the score uh, the score sounds. It, yeah. it it is it is. I don't. Is it considered to be? Uh, what is it? Con- it did run for over five hundred performances. I mean, it ran for a little yeah, while. But it it kind of was. It, you know, became forgotten. I think. I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right about Bach and Harnick. Um, it's interesting that there are that they were a team, as was um, Tom Schmidt, Tom Jones, and Harvey Schmidt, mm-hmm. where they were songwriters who would write songs. Mm-hmm. You, want know, you want a song for that? I'll write a song. I mean, there mm-hmm. were lots and lots and lots and lots of cut songs um, because it, you know, they, they, were, they were more skillful tunesmiths than necessarily you know, great dramatic thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are very few songs cut from Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. There are very few songs cut from Steve Sondheim musicals. Right. There are more cut from these kinds of shows. So yeah. I, think, I think you're right that... that Bach and Harnick at their best were really good songwriters and they really respond, they responded um, to styles. I mean, it, it, you know, it's interesting. One of my early notes to myself about the Rothschilds is how the song Everything had the same haunting quality that Anna Tevka had in Fiddler. Mm-hmm. Out there, there are men no different from us, no better, no brighter, no different from us, except that they're out there while we're in But but ultimately they 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 write songs and they mm-hmm. were they were very good songwriters and um, and I think they were I mean it's interesting I knew I knew I know Sheldon fairly well um, I knew Jerry Bach less well he and I were fellow Tony nominators for a couple of years hmm. and um, they I, I would say this sort of very nicely I try to say this nicely but Sheldon is a really really nice man mm-hmm. and Jerry Bach wasn't. Mm quite mm-hmm. so and so i could sort of see how stylistically they could get to a point where it's like you know what i think we're going to move on um but uh, but they, they they were good also the other thing that was just sort of amusing about the rothschilds and i remember there was an opening night telegram that was from the cast of fiddler on the roof that was still playing right and it said something like you know from jerry and sheldon's poor jews to their rich jews you know break a leg <laughs> Sheldon said, Sheldon pointed out at, at one point that, you know, in Fiddler on the Roof, they're the underdogs, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's much easier to be sympathetic to the underdogs. In the Rothschilds, they're ambitious and they're underdogs at the beginning, but they rise to prominence and they become rich. And that's harder for an audience to become empathetic for. Well, and I wonder how much of it is the problem that the audience, especially at the time, knew the ending before they went into it. 
I mean, this is the the word Rothschild. Yes, yeah, means means money. <laughs> means money. Means wealth. It's it's a it's a kind of decorating style for crying out loud. So yeah. it is when you go into a show called The Rothschilds and they're not doing so great in part of Act right. One, you kind the tension is a little bit removed right. because it's gonna be fine. We right. we all know it's gonna be fine. And that I think the kind of one of the things that feels missing for me is is a sort of lack of personal. A, a personal drive for Meyer or any of them to carry me past that. It almost happens in, uh, at least in the recording. It's the moment where the, his wife says, Your father's been stuffing your heads with crazy plans. Princes, courts, bankers, and for what? Good night, Mama. We have enough. Night, good night, Mama. Good night, Mama. We have enough. We have a fire in the stove, food in the house. We have each other, we have the Sabbath, we have a share in the world to come. What more do you want? What more do we need? Mama, it'll take a fortune to kill that lullaby. Right. And that is the closest I get to understanding to having a moment of like, oh, you're right. Like this guy comes from not from, nothing, comes from yeah. less, well, even less than nothing. Yeah. It's the sense of that lack of security. It's not only that mm -hmm. he didn't have any money. It's that at any moment, the government could decide that usury was, was Ill illegal and, and the Jews all needed to be kicked out and they would have done it. Right. And that flashes and then it kind of fades, and then we go to London, and it's kind right. of a musical comedy again for a little while. And we while. bring in a girl, because they had we, to have a girl. Right, because they had to have a girl in Act 2. It's silly. It's silly. Although it's funny, I, I was very happy to see in, in my notes how much fun I had with Jill Clayberg. Oh, um, well, I mean, and I, come I, on. She's, yeah, I, you know. I do yeah. remember going backstage to her dressing room, and her boyfriend was sitting there. Air. And we had a conversation about how scary Detroit was, and her boyfriend was Al Pacino. Oh, just you know, <laughs> just happened to be just there. It's like dropping in, but it's like, oh yeah, just oh yeah. <laughs> um, I love but, Joe Clayburgh. She's so great. Oh, she was great. She, um, she, she was. Well, the cast. Wonderful. It's funny because I think part of part of what was interesting about replacing the director out of town is that most of the cast really liked Derek Goldby and did not like seeing him go. Mm. Although it was interesting, um, in another, it's in, there's a book called uh, From the Cheap Seats, I think, uh, Up in the Cheap Seats by a guy named um, Ron Fassler, who um, wrote about the Rothschilds. He loved the Rothschilds. And, mm. and I guess he talked to Leela Martin, who said, well, I wish Jill Clayburgh were here to talk about how much we didn't like Derek Olby. We were happy. The girls were happy to see him go. Oh, wow. So that was kind hmm. of funny. But the other thing, you know, to your point about, about you know, the money, um, mm -hmm. the designer made this, this, he said, the set is all in the colors of money. So it was sort of oh, gold wow. and some, you know, dark, dark greens and things like that. Because it, it was a very interesting, um, although very heavy physical production. Um, oh, in terms of just weight, the set. Yeah, yeah, no, oh, and wow. it was yeah a lot of heavy built stuff that you know flew in and flew out and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but I do remember one. It's a little tangential, but it's interesting. When I was thinking of this, um, in those days, and I have no idea if this is still the case. If you hired a British designer, you had to hire an American designer on a union contract, who mm. became the sort of liaison. And in mm -hmm. that instance, it was a man named Fred Volpel. 
who I subsequently knew at the O'Neill Center. And at one point, Fred Volpel um, and I went out to buy spray paint to distress the costumes. And when we went out, you know, with a cardboard box to, you know, fill it with full of spray paint, he said to me, at this point, time is more valuable than money. So we're going to buy four cans of black and four cans of dark brown and four cans of light brown and four cans of dark blue, because frankly, we need them in the costume shop more than just mm -hmm. buying one and deciding that's the one and sending you back out to get the rest of it. And it's funny because it's, it's just an interesting lesson I learned about the times when, when, when time is the most valuable thing when you're putting a show together. That's so, that is so important about, you, you think, and it's especially important to me for people who are sent on those errands to hear that, because I think always the, the tendency is like as a gopher, I'm sure, especially your first show, you would have bought the spent the least amount of money right. possible right. because you don't want to come back with a big receipt. That's like, right. now we bought, we exactly. bought all this paint, but it's so smart that you wouldn't, you know, you try it, test it, dry it. No, you got to go back and you think of how much money we're spending in time, not having what we need. And we, yeah. you're not at the rehearsal. You're not available. Like the costumes aren't available. Yeah. It's, it's such a intelligent and well-learned lesson, I'm sure. Well, and, and in the olden days, once you were out of town with the show, I mean, one of the, I have to say, one of the things about going out of town in the old school way mm -hmm. is everybody is working on that show. There are no distractions. Mm. There's no other reason to be in Detroit. You're working on the show. So everybody, the focus is kind of extraordinary. I think, you know, aside from the fact that now with the internet, if you start previews in New York, everybody's going to have an opinion. But more than that, you're going to go home. And home is going to have its own distractions. Mm -hmm. If you go to a hotel, it's like, okay, let me get somebody to eat and go to bed and then get up in the morning and go back to work. Why did they go to Detroit? Who knows? I mean, the Fisher Theater, which is a weird theater because it's, it's, I mean, it's a perfectly fine theater, but it's in the bottom of the Fisher body by Fisher, which was what, Gen I don't know if they're still doing it, but General Motors, you know, mm. you, when you opened the door to a General Motors car, it said body by Fisher. Sure. So this was a 30 story um, uh, I mean, like office building yeah. that had this theater in the, and Caddy Corner across the street was the General Motors headquarter, but it was not in downtown. It was sort of like, in, on the way to the suburbs. So you, you, you could never even get to downtown. It was its own little community. It was very weird. They must have had a deal. I was going to say, somebody got a deal. Is well, the Nederlanders. I mean, again, the Nederlanders mm. still run that theater, I think. Um, and hmm. so they, you know, they, they make a deal. And, and uh, actually, one of the Nederlander brothers ran that theater. Um, mm. And I remember he was, you know, again, I was, because I was a gopher, I got to, I would go and sort of schmooze with people and, sure. you know, get them talking and sort of do my own little, you know, postgraduate work. I'm, I'm sure in the immediate experience of Rothschilds, it was, it was just so much happening all at once. But what are some of the long, I mean, you've been since then, you know, running the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, actually turning it into the Rogers and Hammerstein organization from just Thanks. the Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. yeah state. Thank you. Yeah. Um, which is an amazing accomplishment and, and doing all the, the things that you've done. Uh, how, what, what are the things that you, you learned on Rothschilds that are, that have been true, that were true then and are true now and have guided you in these, in this journey? Well, I, I would say that, um, and this is based partly on the few comments that I made to myself and Kevin. Mm -hmm. um, 
it seemed to be an unwieldy show. I mean, I actually, there's a letter, there's a draft of a letter that I took upon myself to write to the producer about some problems that I saw and that some solutions that I saw. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, pretty gutsy wow. for me to do. Yeah. And there's one comment that he received the letter and said he wanted to talk to me, which I don't think he ever did. Sure. Um, but I remember it just sort of feel, feeling unwieldy, feeling as if it was sort of going in a million different directions. But also, I was one of two gophers on the show. So there really wasn't enough for me to do. So mm. it, and I think that's part of why the Folly's experience was so extraordinary for me because there was no gopher on, on Follies. I mean, I was there, I was just going to observe Follies, but I was a body around the rehearsal room. And, you know, they started to say, could you do this? Could you do that? Could you mm -hmm. do the other thing? So I really, I mean, I, 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 I think I made a quippy comment about it, but, you know, a book about my experiences on the Rothschild would be a lot less interesting mm -hmm. than, you know, than Follies. I was just around more in Follies. There was, I really kind of had a position there. I typed the scripts, you know, and I, you know, was, was in and out and around doing a lot of stuff. So that in a way, a lesson learned from, from the Rothschilds is, you know, if it's overstaffed, don't take the job. <laughs> <laughs> take take the job when you can figure out um, how to be hungry. I also I, I I find some of these paid internships, I mean like tuition pay, you pay mm -hmm. for the right to be an intern, seems very odd to me. Um, mm -hmm. I mean I, I would always say when asked for advice of you know young people starting is that like if if you can volunteer your services, make certain that you're doing it on something that you will learn from. Mm -hmm. You know, don't don't just, you know, make fried eggs backstage at every performance because, right. you know, somebody needs to do that. That's not, you know, figure out what you, you want to learn about lighting design, then, you know, get yourself to the lighting table and, and pay attention to what's going on and volunteer if there's something that comes up that needs to be done, that kind of stuff. And I was always, I was always hungry to learn new things, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and watch professionals at, you know, at work. One of the, the in the Rothschilds set, there was a, the, the, the Rothschilds house was this large unit that went upstage and downstage and the doors opened, um, you know, sort of folded open both upstairs and downstairs. And at one performance, it got stuck. <laughs> and of course it did. <laughs> and I, my notes were interesting. Well, to watch, to watch the performers deal with that in the mm. middle of a performance mm. because, you know, they're really skillful at it. Um, I mean, it makes for a long intermission when they try to fix it, but still right. just watching those kind of moments um, are really, really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So you, you come from a performance family or a background in, in, in any of well it's a an, i would say it's an it's a it's a it's eclectic arts background my mother was a steinway mm. so um that family built pianos yeah um and my father um sort of perfected the art of arts management um you know he mm. wanted to be a pianist you know he went to the Longy school of music at harvard and studied with the great nadia boulanger who many great musicians studied with and he always said you know she said my dear you have no talent <laughs> and, and then said, but you have a passion, clearly a passion for the arts. And, you know, they need people like you to be managers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So he, that's where he's, his career mm -hmm. was. And he, you know, he, I often said to him, he was at the right place at the right time. I mean, he was the head of the, the Masterworks division of Columbia Records as Stereo had come in. 
And in addition to the cast albums, they, he went through the catalog of classical music with Leonard Bernstein in the New York Philharmonic, Eugene Armandy in the Philadelphia Orchestra, and George Sell the Cleveland Orchestra, and just recorded all kinds of stuff, which to this day are wonderful recordings. Then he went to Lincoln Center before all the buildings had opened, because it never occurred to them that the companies for whom those buildings were built didn't have 52 week a year seasons. So he right. came up with the summer festival. So he kept being in these jobs that were fascinating. And, and I have to say, he, he always welcomed my brothers and me in, mm -hmm. you know, there was never a sense of you should either from my mother's family, you should go into the piano business or, you know, you should go into the arts. And I just, I think I learned it by osmosis because mm -hmm. it was like, Ooh, 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 this is fun. This is, I like this. Mm -hmm. So in a funny way, the, the Rogers and Hammerstein job, a job that never existed, um, turned out to be a really good match because I knew I had a passion for theater and musical theater. Um, I had had an eclectic bunch of experiences, including running the musical theater lab. Um, and they took a chance on me mm -hmm. because they, they didn't know what to do after mm -hmm. Rogers died. And, um, and so it, I remember you know, the, first, the first day I was at the office, I came home and said to my wife, gee, I don't know what this is. Um, <laughs> but I'll give it a shot for a while and see. And it just, it was very, um, it, it allowed me the time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And working with the families was, it was, it was at the end of the day, a lot of fun. Because mm -hmm. um, I think we knew we were not in rocket science, but at the same time, when things were good, it was exciting. Well, because I was going to say, you're, you're, the way you describe your, your father's career sounds a lot like yours. I mean, it yep. sounds like bouncing around and then landing in these, like being the right person in the right place at the right time yeah. to, no, to take it on. When you took the position with Rodgers and Hammerstein, um, or created it, <laughs> it right. sounds like, um, and then went about building that into, you know, taking this music publishing thing and making it a real music publishing group and really curating these shows. As you've been doing that throughout the years, what do you feel is your primary role in the estate of what is the premier music theater partnership in American history like what kind of what do you, you view your role is as, as the head of that organization well i i think sort of looking back since it's been a number of years mm -hmm. um and when i started you know yule brenner was touring the country in a you know a, a boffo box office you know production of the king and i or as we say the king and i mm -hmm. um and it was a pretty <laughs> cheesy production that wasn't all that good but it didn't matter right and I remember thinking, gee, um, I mean, there'd been a production of Oklahoma on Broadway when Rogers died in 79. Mm -hmm. right. um, but Broadway was not that interested in those kind of revivals. And Brenner, yes, he came back. But I remember thinking to myself, what, what's next? What's going to be next? Um, you know, is, is there ever going to be a home on Broadway for these shows? And as I got to know them better, um, I came to respect them. I mean, I, re I remember seeing a production of Carousel at the St. Bart's Playhouse on Park Avenue and looking at it and thinking, you know, this, this is a really dramatically interesting piece of theater. Mm -hmm. And this may very well be the one that would get people to rethink what their perceptions about Rodgers and Hammerstein are. So even though I can't take full credit 
obviously for the Royal National Theater doing Carousel and that mm -hmm. production that came to Lincoln Center. I, I sort of kept trying to figure out how could we be um, there and reactive and, and respectful, but encouraging these different examinations. And once that started, then it became easier to sort of figure out where projects might go um, you know, that would be interesting. And then sort of along with that came the, the, the rethinks and the ones that we created. Um, you know, the, the, the flower drum song, which I have great affection for. It didn't, mm. you know, it didn't last on me in, on Broadway very well, but it, you couldn't get a seat when it was in LA. Mm. You know, and um, State Fair, creating a, a stage mm. version of State Fair that, you know, still gets licensed. You know, and then when we took on the Irving Berlin catalog to you know, put together White Christmas. So it became this sort of eclectic collection of um, making, you know, of, of, of feeding the golden goose to make certain that the golden goose stayed golden, <laughs> but also looking at things that were related, but maybe nobody had thought about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, there were, there were also, uh, you know, it was a combination of patience and um, smarts. Because there were things that would happen, I would, I, you know, some ideas that I would have that it was, I had to sort of nurse it through the, the Rogers and Hammerstein families, things like the Allegro recording, mm, um, you know, really? because, yeah, I mean, I, that, was a, that was an idea that came up because um, my colleague, Bruce Pomahack, who was a wonderful fellow, um, he and I talked about how uh, we never saw Allegro and we'll never know what Allegro was, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe the thing to do is to create a, a recording that would give us and the world Allegro, mm -hmm. not try to fix it, but it's like, here's what it was, right. you know, and, um, you know, we, frankly, we did it in a way that the, the cost was not only fairly modest, but spread out over three years. And when I explained to the families what I wanted to do, you know, I said, if, you know, if, it doesn't work. We can sort of, you know, mm -hmm. take the, the expense, write the expenses off yeah. a year, you know, over the years. And they were enthusiastic about it. And we, um, it was a great project. And it was, again, a real entrepreneurial, if we don't do this, nobody's going to do it. But, but as, as you clearly know by this podcast and what it's called, mm -hmm. it is very seductive to fall in love with a cast album. Oh yeah. Um, and, and, then the next step when you suddenly become obsessed with a particular one, it's like, you know, this may not have worked on stage, but I know how to, I know how to make it work. And you'd so, so lose your perspective on it because mm -hmm. it's like, you know, there's usually, there's usually a reason, I mean, why it doesn't work. I mean, very rare in our world are things like Chicago that truly was at the wrong, in the wrong, mm -hmm. about time, the wrong, year. The wrong yeah. season. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that several years, many years later, doing it in the encore's version happened to celebrate everything about that show that was good mm -hmm. without the you know, chorus line looming over it. Right. That, that happens, I think, very rarely. But I think people, it, that also is a seductive thing to think about. Oh, I'll do this show and, you know, it's funny though. I do think about it's funny the full Monty I was thinking about the other day because mm, mm -hmm. that is a show that I think um, is a lot better than people think. Oh um, yes. And it, again, it came in under the shadow of the producers. Right. And um, you know, so that's one that I think, you know, 
if, if they're overlooked because of, you know something bigger and bolder has come storming into town you know th those are the ones those are the few and yeah. far between ones to, to be looked at i think well i think also i mean the wisdom is and i wonder if you agree with this that shows with mediocre scores but great books will run longer than shows with great scores and bad books yep, yep. and the, obviously the book even if it is in snippets is not on the recording so you can have a great score on a recording that highlights that great score and what it yeah. and you go gosh that show's perfect why would anyone not want to see which i think is the merrily experience merrily is one of the most well-produced cast albums ever. yeah no it's great yeah. it's great and it is such a it is clear that that thomas shepherd took that thing and was like i'm going to make a cast album right. that really celebrates this score and that is why I think that show keeps getting redone yep. and retooled is because people go, no, that album's amazing. There's got to be a show in here somewhere. Yeah, no, and, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you, it, follows, it follows those two brilliant RCA Sondheim albums of Pacific Overtures, oh, yeah. Sweeney Todd and Merrily. Oh, yeah. oh, RCA and Shepard were at the height of their powers. Those are great, great albums. So the time has come, Ted, to talk of many things, the walrus said, uh, because you, 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 I can hold off no longer to talk about follies, um, because you've swung into to my, and I don't know if you know the answer to this question or not, you may not, but the, I've heard a lot of explanations as to why the cast album of Follies is on Capitol and not on Columbia. Um, do you know why that is the case? Well, I... I was or never in any. I should say, yeah. Well, I, I was going to say I was never in any specific conversation about it. But what I believe mm -hmm. was that um, the CBS-owned movie division had done something for everyone, mm -hmm. um, and that Hal directed Hal Prince's it. Film. Yeah. Hal Prince directed it, and with Angela Lansbury, it wasn't a very good movie. And Hal, as a director, was was disgruntled with Columbia for not having distributed it well. Um, so Capital pitched to to do the show, and um, and Halden was grumpy at Columbia, so he gave it to, to Capital. Then Dick Jones, the album producer, who was a family friend, um, was tried to get him to do it in two LPs. And of course, that same season, Two Gentlemen of Verona was on two LPs. Right. So it's not as if it was an idea that no one would do, but the people at Capital wouldn't do it. Mm. Um, so, so partly that's why it's so truncated, mm -hmm. but then, and I think I say this in, in, in the book, Capital didn't have a big enough studio in New York to do a cast album. Columbia had its 30th street studio and RCA used Webster hall, which is still in existence on 13th street, I think. Mm. Um, so Capital had to find a studio in which to do any of their cast albums. It's also why most of their cast albums don't have great sound. Yeah. They have very you know, hollow sound. Yeah. And it was because it certainly Follies was made at Manhattan center on 34th street up on the ballroom on the seventh floor. And, um, and it was a technical nightmare of a day. I mean, I do remember sitting in, in the booth, and you also couldn't see out on the floor. So it was only, you know, you can only talk back and forth. Mm -hmm. But I remember in the middle of a take, and I don't remember which song, suddenly you heard a <laughs> So some microphone, you know, you know and yeah. so there, was, there went that take. And, but to find out what that thing was, right. you know, it took 10 minutes. And, you know, oh, sure. so, so there's, a, there's, there's that sort of slightly hurried feel. Some people aren't quite on mic. Um, I mean, there are some great performances on that album, but it was so unfortunate to have that score um, released in that odd form. Yeah. Um, 
for the beginning. So, yeah, it's 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 a funny show in that sense because you talk about shows surviving partially because of the album. Obviously, that is one of them. But I think it's also people have not only been chasing productions of Follies; they've been chasing the cast recording. I mean, right. how many cast recordings of Follies there are do many. we have now that pretend or claim? I shouldn't say pretend. That's un- that's unkind. Claim to be the definitive right. cast. Right. I mean, Paper Mill did one for crying out loud. Like everybody wants right. to record this show. And, and they put all the cut songs in there. Oh my gosh, <laughs> all of them. In fact, which is actually, I love, I mean, obviously devour yeah. that up and down all day long, but it does show what a delicate thing producing a cast album is. And it is a genuine shame that Thomas Shepard wasn't able to do the two LP version of of follies that we all deserved but we yeah actually yeah. never see no and um, it is it is it is interesting and i said before about the the, the technology went with the with the record company mm-hmm. um and at one point i remember when my father was at columbia there was they they um columbia invented 360 sound yeah which is going to be put it on the cover of all the lps right yeah and then rca <laughs> had dynagroove you know, so they were all, they were trying to, uh, to upgrade their own technology. Now, you know, the technology is for everybody to buy at Best Buy and you, you and I could make a cast album mm-hmm. that is equal in sound quality mm-hmm. to, you know, what a, what a major record company does. So that, that was one difference. And also, I mean, there's some magic to what Goddard Lieberson and for the most part, Tom Shepard were able to do in terms of capturing performances. Oh, I mean, yeah. one of the ones I keep pointing out is if you listen to the cast album of The Sound of Music, Mary Martin hardly has any voice. Right. And it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. She's giving an, a completely compelling and convincing performance. Mm-hmm. Um, she's obviously relaxed and he just knew how to get the best out of her. Mm-hmm. And obviously part of it was keeping them calm and keeping them um, confident and you know and that's a, that's where I think you know Goddard Lieberson's sort of you know European patois um, <laughs> helped because you know he was a gentleman he was a real gentleman but he so. also had he had such a concept of what an album should sound like I mean he yep. is the king of no dialogue dialogue right. like when repeated people don't like to hear dialogue like he was really right. like we're making it he's the one I think who made the cast album an art form made it its yep. own thing to be. And then obviously yep. Thomas Shepard picked up that mantle, having studied under him and, and carried it on into the seventies. Um, though I am always interested on the Columbia when Goddard Leverson came back to produce like little night music and chorus lines, like, well, no, I'll do this one. So obviously you, you to talk about follies, you wrote a yep. book. So I, I want to encourage people to go read everything <laughs> was possible by Ted Chapin. Cause it is, it's a fascinating read uh, I, for so many reasons. How lucky were you that you kept a diary during yes. this, this historical <laughs> yes. occasion? Um, it's worth it alone for the color photographs, gang, in the middle, which are just so beautiful. Especially oh, and I, I, I went looking for those. I'm I sure went you did. For those. They're so, it's so, I mean, it's one of those shows where people just want everything or anything like of, of uh, you know, pieces of information. It's so so ethereal it sort of was and then it was gone yeah. even though it again also ran for over 500 performances yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but it is still that but inter- of- interesting about about the photograph photographs mm. uh, i mean i had cut out um and saved uh, newspaper articles and mm. well, that, that kind of stuff sure. but i remember when when uh, the book proposal was put together and the agent who was helping me with it said what about photographs and i said well i don't own any of them but i i know where they are and i can go mm-hmm. find them so there's a guy, it was a, it was a guy no longer with us, unfortunately, Bill Yoscari, 
who was the house property man at the now Neil Simon, then Alvin Theater, who mm -hmm. was a photographer. Mm -hmm. And he was on assignment to Look Magazine um, to go to, up to the Bronx where we were rehearsing on the set, but also to Boston for an article about Hal Prince. So when I started the book, I, I found him. He was no longer working in the theater. I found him and he called me one day and said, you know, where's your office? Let me come by. He came by with a cardboard box under his arm and he handed it to me. And in the cardboard box, contact sheets of all the black and white photographs and many, many pages of color slides. Oh, and I remember wow. taking them home and thinking, oh my God, this is sort of like King it's Tut's all, tomb. To say, it's I all found. here. It's all yes. here. <laughs> but, but it's, you know, and including, I mean, there's this, some silly pictures of me, there's, you know, with taking notes for Hal up at the Bronx, which I had no, no knowledge that it had ever been taken. Mm. But also Bill's photographs, part of what I love about them were, you know, there's a picture of Hal out of town in the theater yes, with his head in with the his hands. head in his hands. It's iconic, and it, I well, think. And it's like, you know, guys, that's what it's about. And there's also one I love. I mean, again, they're not the most fantastically composed, beautiful art photographs, mm -hmm. but boy, do they tell the story. There's one where he's giving notes to the cast and you look, they're all lined up on stage after a performance, you know, and their ties are askew and, you know, it's before they've gotten out of their costumes. And obviously he's saying, you know, the call tomorrow is this, notes right. then, well, I'll see you then. But, uh, but I did love, it, especially the color photograph with line in beautiful girls when they're lined up in mm -hmm. profile oh yeah. i just thought i've got to do that gotta find that i love i love the picture of michael bennett in his floppy leather hat and i i like oh, it yeah, because of smokes. how it's, it's, it's right oh of course well of course it's it's 19 everybody's 1970. everybody's smoking the uh but it, it the it's pictures like that actually that really suit the tone of the book which is just very you're in the room yeah i like the sense of i like what i really like about the book is that it puts me there. You're, you're, you're a little, you, you have some moments of, you know, reflection and some moments right. of looking back and, and all this from, from you know, hindsight and all that. But for the most part, it's really just about this kid is in the middle of a show and it's really just a show. You're obviously excited to be with, you know, how these are top talents. You know yeah. who these people are. You know who all the actors are. You know, you know the level you're working right. with. But it's the total, it's, it's a really great answer to the eternal question that people always get when they work on something like this, which is like, did you know you right. were working on Follies? And it's right. like, no, right. nobody has any idea Never. in the middle of it. They think, yeah, it's pretty good. It might be good. And yeah. then also has that great, though, finale to it. I mean, of how reading the, you know, the, the review and like everybody's doing so well. And then you just know the show doesn't ever quite land the yeah. way it deserves to yeah. in new york and like we say it didn't have intermission so people weren't walking out at intermission they were leaving you know at some point when they, they were up and like those, those who wanted were up and out yes that's true I, yeah i don't think sondheim ever should have done a show at the winter garden he never really had a great experience there right because he did follies <laughs> um Pacific Overtures, and right. I think West Side Story was at the Winter Garden too. Which the also original West Side Story was there, yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, it's a walkout place for some. Well, well, <laughs> well, well, well. Yeah, no, 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 but but I just gonna say, you know, doing the book was so. I mean, I kept a journal because I needed to get course credit for a special project. And when Sondheim discovered that, he said, "All my, all my heroes have clay feet." And I was like, "Well, I made no bones about that. I, I'm not a journal keeper. I just did it then." Right. Um, and, and I picked the right time to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, part of part of 
when I sat down to write the book was like, I, I wasn't getting even with anybody. I mean, sometimes those kind of books, you get, oh, he didn't like, you know, this person was mean to him. So he didn't like that person. And it was like, no, 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 no. It was much more, what was going on had its own variations of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to the extent that I could observe and report um, everybody trying to get a show, you know, because I said, you know, the focus, the out of town and the rehearsal focus on a, on a brand new musical. Yeah. Everybody's focused in a way that is kind of amazing. Yeah. And it's really, and there are moments, there are fun moments behind the scenes, sort of, I mean, Fifi Dorsey alone is worth like most of the, <laughs> those sort of stories. Such a hilarious, wonderful character. Um, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but it is, you know, you, you, you maybe say some, you know, tell some stories that people would maybe have gone, ooh, at the time, but we're so far removed and it's all told in such genuine and it's just, it's just what happened. Like, it's not, you know, there's no yeah. judgment here. This is what somebody said. They said and, it in front of a lot of people. <laughs> and before I started, I, I wanted to reach out certainly to Hal Prince and Steve Sondheim. Sure. Um, who were still around um, yeah. and just say, listen, this opportunity has come up. Are you okay with this? Mm-hmm. And um, Sondheim said, do you have enough? And I said, I don't know, <laughs> but I'll try. And Hal said, oh, that's great. I'm always asked about writing process and i just want to do it so you know mm-hmm. and they were great they were great again my part of why i think the, the book works as it does is that i just kept sending the manuscript to people mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know and it's like t- t- this is my best shot tell me what i did you know if, you, if i've got it wrong tell me what i got wrong um and everybody that i sent it to had some very helpful thing to say so it's really great. I mean, you have to get it, guys. It's the everything was possible by Ted Chapin, the birth of the musical follies. It's it's yeah. a it's a joy and a and a, a one and of you my have a hardcover there, and it's I it's, do uh, have a hardcover. They're here, yes. they're hard to get these days, but the paperback oh, yeah. is uh, is out. I feel like before we wrap up, I have to ask you some Rodgers and Hammerstein questions. You can ask anything. I'm enjoying uh, this. <laughs> no, great. I'm glad. Um, what is your favorite Rodgers and Hammerstein show? My favorite Roger and Hammerstein show is The King and I, and it's um, really? for a couple of, for a couple of reasons. Yeah, it's the first right. one I ever saw mm-hmm. um, at Lincoln Center at the what was called the Music Theater of Lincoln Center in the in the uh, New York State Theater, um, and with Reza Stevens and Darren McGavin. And there was something that I found captivating about it. Since since working at Rogers and Hammerstein, and of course, I, you know, I will love whatever show I'm working on at the time and and learn about and respect every Mm -hmm. one of them. But there's a wisdom I feel in the King and I that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, the the fact that it's kind of an anti-love story, Mm -hmm. but it's a cultural exchange um, from smart people who are both opinionated, um, firm, and ultimately willing to listen Mm-hmm. and realize that the world is a middle ground and we've got to find it. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's, you know, why I just, you know, I, I have great fondness for it. Sure. Uh, but I, but I'm, I can, glad you, I'm glad you said that. Cause I think it's a, it's a sort of disrespected in a lot of ways. Well, there, um, there, there there's a cultural com- mis, uh, misguided notion that it is somehow out, you know, wildly culturally outdated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've, I've spoken to students and, you know, there, it's often somebody who says it's, you know, it, it, it's all about, you know, the, the West coming and trying to show the East how to do it right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I do point out that historically King Mongut asked 
for the West, asked for this woman to come so he could learn how they tick. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't be, you know, so it's a very interesting sort of cultural, nothing was done to him. He did, he did it. He made the, made it happen mm-hmm. and then got a little more than he bargained for. Sure. Um, you know, so, so I think, I, I think that, you know, I mean, topped him being sold and being a gift, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, there are things that, that, you know, might not, um, you know, might not be acceptable today. So how tough is that for you in that position? If you, if you're in the position of being in charge of the, the canon, and there are aspects of, you know, all of those shows, every show is a product of its time. Every show is a product of the points of views that the authors had who are products of their time writ large. And so any show that is over 30 years old is going to have things in it that are dated mm-hmm. uh, and are going to have moments in them that do not resonate and don't work anymore. And things you, if you say you can't do today, how do you, as someone who is sort of the guardian of, of the, of the, of the work, when you see something you're like, well, we can't do that. You know, they want to do this, sh- whatever show and they, we can't do that part of it. How do you reconcile? What, how do you strike the balance between respecting author's intention and respecting that it theater is a living, breathing thing that exists you know, it, it, in the modern time? The, the first step towards that is to engage in a good dialogue with the creative artists who are doing the show mm-hmm. and see what, the, what concerns they have. Um, you know, and it comes up with Carousel all the time. Sure. You know, I mean, it, you know, it was, it was Molnar or the translator who did the, you know, is it possible for somebody to hit you real hard and for it not to hurt at all? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's been, that's been tricky for many, many years. And directors understand what's meant by that but they're always concerned and sometimes cutting the line sometimes putting billy bigelow in a situation where you try to explain to the audience that this is not this is not condoning you know beating your wife right um but but again the more there's a dialogue also in the days when the families owned the, the the shows they were they were similarly respectful of things that that should be tweaked mm-hmm. um so so i think that's that's the best way to do it i mean the, the, the daniel fish oklahoma you mm-hmm. know there was a dialogue from the very beginning i mean smart producers will call us right away and say i got this idea mm-hmm. and i don't know if you're going to go for it but here's here's what we want to do and here's why we want to do it mm-hmm. and also the longer i've been at rogers and hammerstein the more confident I grew about the ultimate quality of these shows so that I don't think one change or one thing cut is going to destroy the, you know, the the shows are strong enough. They're so well constructed Mm -hmm. that to respond to, and and I believe they are small things, frankly, to, you know, to styles that have changed, um, again, let's find a middle ground that, that everybody's mm-hmm. happy with. And, and that, that's, that's satisfying to everybody. They don't feel as if there's been some lawyer wrapping them on the knuckles. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm trying to understand, you know, again, you know, part of these things was you know, being, to be in the middle of watching theater artists mount a production. Mm-hmm. It's got to have given me a sense of what they're going through. 
So that, you know, and also I'm a hired hand. I mean, most estates either have, you know, family members who have emotional baggage that goes along with deciding what's to be done or lawyers who just want to deal, you know, or in some instances like James Michener, you know, he had no children. So he gave all his copyrights to Swarthmore College, you know, so, they, you know, an institution or family. Right. And I'm sort of this sort of hybrid in the middle of it all. And when it's been fun and when it's worked, it, it, it's because I, you know, I, I like these theater people and I consider them colleagues. Is there one that you wish would get revived and kind of redone in a serious, even Oklahoma-ish, like read the recent Oklahoma well, the, way? The, the weird answer to that question is um, Jack O'Brien did a production of The Sound of Music that toured the country. I don't mm-hmm. know if played Washington, I don't know if you saw it. But what he did was he went right back to what opened on Broadway in 1959. Mm-hmm. He didn't try to put, you know, I have confidence in me and put st- stuff the movie into it, which everybody thinks you got to do because that's what the audience wants. Right. Jack went right back to the original and did a production that was extremely well directed so that you n- understood what was going on with the characters. And it was kind of a revelation. So that's the one. I don't think that mm. production's life is over. Mm. It's not a radical rethink. But it's a, it's a sort of user-friendly, somewhat traditional production whose revel, revelatory aspect is that it trusts what Rogers, Hammerstein, Lindsay, and Krauss wrote in 1959. So that's, that, that's the one that's sort of on the horizon. Well, actually, this is a good place to, to wrap up and ask, what is your favorite song in the Rothschilds? You know, the one that I, well, I love, I, I, I love Sons because I think it's such mm. a great piece of piece of work mm-hmm. um um for a tune for a toe tapping tune i'll take rothschild and sons which i just think is you know right. it was just a very cheerful cheer and since i have brothers mm-hmm. nothing but brothers i kind of like that song right. um but there's some there's some nice songs in there and some good lyrics and a couple of clunky things but uh but yeah no the, 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 those are my two choices if you had to pick one, which one would you? Which one would you go with? I think I'd go with with Rothschild and Sons. Oh, you go with the toe tapping. Yeah, I go with the. It's a musical <laughs> comedy. Thank you so much, Ted. This was a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you, thank you, and thank Douglas for steering me. In yes, your direction. yes, absolutely. Douglas Carter Bean. Douglas Carter Bean. Absolutely, it was so great that you. You know it. that he's. You know that inspired by his being on this program, he's doing an adaptation of Babes in Arms. That's I did how not, it all. Is that, that true? How, that's how it all came up. He called me and he said, I did this podcast and all the cast albums I was going to pick were already chosen. So right. I grabbed this Babes grabbed in Arms. Babes and, in arms I, yeah. and I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise me because he was very passionate about Yeah, the, yeah, Babes yeah. So arms. who knows? Like, you know, I'll invite you if it ever comes I was going to say, me. well, afterwards, I'll give you my address and you can send yeah. me, a, you know, I get, I think I take 5% for that kind of right. thing. So we'll get it, we'll get it on that thing. Um, right. So you're still obviously with the Rogers and Hammerstein organization in the middle of all this <laughs> quarantining that we're doing. Yeah. Um, where can people find out what you're, what you're up to or what the organization's up to? You know, I'm not really sure. I think everybody, you know, I mean, let, let me put it this way. Concord that, that bought the Dutch company mm-hmm. that bought Roger and Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. Concord is, is in the recorded music business and the music publishing business, the music business in addition to theater. Mm-hmm. And luckily, since theater has kind of come to a screeching halt and most of the conversations are about, can we stream 
mm-hmm. uh, or do something virtually. Um, but the other parts of Concord are are going fairly, you know, great guns. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, so it's it's softened the blow a little bit, and the mm-hmm. and the theater people are uh, nobody's been laid off, nobody's been furloughed. So I give oh, the great. Concord guys great great credit for it. Um, but I, you know, there there's a new Concord Theatricals website. There's, there's going to be a new Rogers and Hammerstein website. There's a very good Irving Berlin website that I, I don't even know what the, what the, what the phrase is, but that's, that's, you know, mm-hmm. you know, go searching and that's, that's where you'll that's find what you'll whatever's find. going on or what might be happening in the future. <laughs> you know, I mean, so many conversations are, well, we could do this in September or. Right. <laughs> or we shall see. Oh God. <laughs> oh, please, oh, please. My. Yes. Please. Let, let it all, let it all stop yeah. so we can. Yes, go back to the theater. Thank you so much, Ted. Listen, my pleasure and big fan and enjoy doing this. Shoulders back, every head held high, for at last we're underway. Founders of the famous financial firm, Rothschild and Sons. Jaws will drop when the world finds out what a step we took today. Copenhagen's favorite banking house, Rothschild and Sons. Yes, you skeptical souls who sold us short. We're superior agents of the court. Twinkling high in the fiscal sky is a newly risen star. There's another firm in the firmament, Rothschild and Sons. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at UnknownPenguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. My thanks to Ted Chapin for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. We're superior agents. We're superior International finance Say hello to a bright new world To a bleak one, say farewell Look who's making loans to the Danish crowd Look who gave a shove and a word and a Look who's making loans